what is going on everyone it is thursday august 26 2021 my name is mark real i'm your host and tonight i am flying solo we had a, a little bit of a uh, late covid cancellation so uh, we decided to turn tonight into a a q a session so um, I've, I've got a little bit of information that I'm going to present, some things I'm going to talk about, and then we're just going to turn it over and I'm going to spend the next 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever it may be, answering questions. So go ahead, start putting those questions in the comments. Um, but before we jump into that, do have a little bit of housekeeping I want to take care of. So I know some of you have been reaching out to us about, hey, it's not on Facebook anymore. We're in the process of transitioning to where the shows are going to be live on YouTube. Uh, it's just a better platform for what we want to do and how the Father's Rights Movement is going to grow. So um, tonight we're back on Facebook because uh, that's where a lot of our comments and interactions are from. If you're on Facebook, I encourage you to open up YouTube on your phone, on your computer, wherever you're watching, and watch it from there. And also everyone watching tonight, Go ahead and go like the Father's Rights Movement YouTube page, and you can actually set alerts for not only my show, but for Unfaltering Fathers on Tuesdays with Nick, and then live with Rosa on Wednesday, so you can get notifications when we go live each of those days. And I know there's some more uh, content coming down the chute from the Father's Rights Movement. So we have about 600,000 likes on Facebook and only 1,500 likes on YouTube. Uh, this vi these shows get anywhere two to three thousand views. Uh, if everyone goes to YouTube right now, likes that, we can double, triple, and it allow us to grow uh, that social media channel. So that that's that bit of housekeeping. Um, and now we'll move on. Uh, so as most of you know, I don't usually do a lot of the talking on these shows, but I am a Southern California family law attorney. I represent exclusively men, uh, realistically statewide. I'm based out of Riverside, California, just outside of Los Angeles, but we represent men from San Diego all the way up to Northern California, Modesto, San Jose, Stockton, and all I do is work in the family courts. So on a daily and weekly basis, I, I see and hear just about everything through consultations, through being in court, um, so I'm going to provide you a little bit of my experience as being a person that's went through the family court system and someone who interacts with it every single day as an attorney. So really, I want to kind of it's my top 10 points that I make to men that I represent. And I want to walk through these and I'm sure these this is going to spur some questions as well, too. So what are some of the biggest mistakes men make? I think number one is we fail to control the controllables. Um, that may be a little bit of a sports term that, uh, that some of the athletes have heard from their coaches, but it also applies to family court. So we can control how we talk, we can control how we act, and we can control what we do. So on the talking piece, every single consultation, every single conversation I have with the man, the number one way that men get themselves in trouble is what they say or what they text, what they send in an email, what they say on talking parents. Um, my biggest piece of advice when it comes to that is that you need to be brief. You need to be extremely positive. I, I describe it as being uncomfortably positive. Um, no matter how much you hate your co-parent at that moment in time, you have to be extremely positive 
And then we want to be directly about the child. We don't want to get drawn into back and forth. We don't want to get into arguments um, because I think it would be a lot of individuals' opinions that men's words are held to a different standard than that of women when going through family court. So there's some things that, can, that women can say and get away with that men will not. Um, and in many of the states, I know Nevada, California, some of these states have domestic violence laws written where those mean texts can get you in a lot of hot water. Um, controlling how we act. Uh, that's that's going to be a conscious decision. No matter how frustrated we get, no matter how angry we are, those are real and reasonable emotions given the situation. But we have to be able to take a step back and realize that in a lot of instances, we're going to have to prove we're a fit and good father. Um, where the mom may be presumed to be a fit parent, we're going to want to every single step of the way, give the judge zero reason to believe that we're less than a fit parent. And then controlling what we do. So I do I a lot of times associate with that face-to-face -face interaction. A lot of times the face-to-face -face interaction with your co-parent is something that's unavoidable. Yeah, we can design plans where school is the drop-off pickup but you're going to have to be face to face with them. And then also you're going to be confronted by your children with tough questions. And we have to be able to take a step back and understand that everything we say, everything we do could be used against us. So controlling the controllables, that, that's such a huge piece for in terms of being successful. And a lot of times that starts even before we enter the court system. The number of times that men come to me with already having domestic violence restraining orders or one has been filed because they've said things they shouldn't. And realistically, it was a heat of the moment. They may have not really meant it, but that's something that can have long lasting impact on your relationship with your children. Uh, number two, uh, th this is another one where where you can where it's a mixed bag. Some men are really good at it, other men not so much. Um, and this can, and that is documenting what goes on. So I advise all men you should have a journal and a calendar. The journal you can document any interactions, for example, telephone calls, drop offs, anything like that. Doctor's appointments, you can keep all the kids' information, when you've done certain things with them, what you've done. I see men even go as far as they document each day they have their child, what they did, what they ate, all of that stuff. A lot of times that can be overboard, but it can come back to protect you if you, you have documented everything that's gone on. And number two is that calendar. Uh, so especially before there's a judgment, you may be one of those situations where you're arguing over how much time you've actually had the child in terms of calculating child support. If you can go back and you already have a calendar created, that can, that can carry a lot of weight with judges that, hey, this individual is documenting this, he's keeping the kids on a schedule, and that can be looked at very favorably. Um, and, and I'll move on to point three here, um, educating yourself. And I think educating yourself comes in two, two ways. Number one is educating yourself on experiences that men have had going through family court, whether that be most recently and notably, uh, we have the respondent, Greg Ellis's book that's come out where he talks about his experiences here in 
um, in the family court in Los Angeles, a courthouse that I'm in probably every other week. Um, and there are numerous other individuals who have written about their experiences going through family court. But the most important piece to educate your on, yourself on is what the laws are in your state. So, for example, I have here, and this, this book usually sits on my desk when I talk to men, and it is The Family Code. Pretty thick book. Um, you're looking north of 700 pages. But when it comes to family court, your emotions, your feelings don't matter. What you need to understand is how the situation fits in the family code of your specific state. Um, other states don't matter. It's going to be specific to your state. But understanding what goes into the determination, because each state outside of Kentucky and Arkansas use that best interest standard. But how do they codify that? What do they ask for the judge to evaluate on? Those can be slightly different. And so knowing those things can um, help you start to build your case. And then number two, and this one's one that's been made a lot easier by COVID, is processes and procedures. Understanding how the mechanics of the court work. Uh, now, a lot of states, these things are live stream on YouTube. You can go into a court hearing you can, on YouTube and watch how it happens. You can go find a case that maybe is in a similar position and watch what the judge does. So you understand what's going on when you walk into court. Now, that could be whether you're pro se or whether you have an attorney. Just having that knowledge can provide you a, a level of comfort. And uh, number four, uh, building your case. So a lot of men come in and they're all over the place. This is an extremely emotional situation. And it's involving the most important piece of your life, your children. And we have all of these really strong emotions, really strong feelings. And we want to put those into the case. That's how we want to build our case. But ultimately, how much you want to be with your child, how much you want to spend all the time in the world with them may not have any impact on, on your case itself. You need to be able to take a step back, look at the facts and run it through what those factors are in determining custody. Um, because that, that emotional piece is going to get you really nowhere. And on top of that, or I guess in addition to that, uh, this, this is kind of tying the things together in terms of documenting and then educating yourself on the laws. You want to be able to tie these facts into your arguments. So if you go look at a declaration or a brief that's been written by an attorney, a lot of times it will say, Sally sent a text message to John saying this see exhibit three and that text message is right there attached then sally did this see text message or see exhibit four and they have the evidence and proof a lot of times we get into family court with this he said she said we want to be able to provide as much documentation as we possibly can so that that's going to be a a huge part of this going in there and just stating on the record or testifying to things can be powerful, but if you can back that up with documentation, it's going to take it to that next level. And then the last piece is ultimately, no matter the situation, no matter what you have going on, um, you got to be a good dad. Uh, like I said in, in the first point, uh, a lot of times 
we're as a father, you're going to have to prove you're a fit and able parent. Uh, and so you're going to have to actually be a great dad when you have your kids. And it's going to have to appear that way from the outside, because that's what the judge, that's what an evaluator, that's what the people who are going to be making the decisions are going to see. And most importantly, one of the biggest challenges is a quick case in family law court is three to four months. And I know we probably have individuals on here who have been in the system for five, six, seven, eight years is just not giving up, continuing to do all the right things. Um, there may be things happen. There will be things happen that may not appear to be fair. Uh, we just have to continue to be there for our kids and continue to work and continue to try. So those are kind of my five major points uh, that, that I go over with really every client. Um, a lot of times I'll tie in more California specific stuff, but um, controlling the controllables, documenting everything, educating yourself, whether you're pro se or whether you have an attorney, you need to educate yourself and uh, building your case, taking the emotion out of it and basing it in fact. And then the fifth one being a good dad. So now with the conclusion of that, we're about 15 minutes in. Uh, we'll hop in and we'll take some questions here. So let me dig in. We got we got a lot of activity. So once again, for those of you that are just joining us, if you're on Facebook, go ahead, open YouTube up on your phone, on your computer and watch it right there on YouTube and also like the page. 1500 likes on YouTube, not nearly enough from a group 600,000 strong on Facebook. All right, let me dig through. We got we got an active comment section. All right, so we'll go with the first one here. Frank, how do you combat false allegations? So this is a tough one, and this is a, a very, very regular conversation that has to be had. So if it's an utterly false allegation, you can essentially just say that didn't happen. And in our minds, and even in an attorney's mind, it feels like you're saying you're an eight year old saying, no, that didn't happen. Which is obviously something that that we talk about being based in fact. Um, it's really, really difficult. So a lot of times it, it takes a lot more effort to combat a, just an utterly false allegation. You have to I've seen situations where you're able to prove that the timing of their allegation doesn't make sense or you're able to pull text messages, emails, talking parents messages, whatever it may be, and show that the way they're explaining, the way they said things happen, couldn't have happened. A lot of times it's gonna be circumstantial. They say on X night, this occurred, and the best you're gonna to have to combat it is, you maybe you have text messages from earlier in the day, and then text messages the next morning. And so let's say in the instance of a domestic violence incident, so you'd have text messages earlier in the day that there's obviously nothing wrong. And then they allege the incident occurred. And then the next morning you have text messages and it's just business as usual. Um, so that's something that can be very, very challenging. Uh, usually the best way to go about it, if you can get, if they're going to be on the stand is to push them for specifics. Um, and and force them to get granular with what happened. Because if it's just utterly false, that's going to be very challenging. But at the same time, that's a little bit of a, a dangerous strategy um, because it, it can backfire. So thank you for that question, Frank. And uh, 
All right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pull up not not so much a question, but um, Lamont's got an opinion here that I think I think is valid and deserves some discussion. So um, Lamont and I are friends. We we know each other. We talk pretty regularly. Um, so I, I kind of know where he stands on a lot of things. Um, I'd recommend zero communication between you and your ex. Just follow the court order. Um, I think in a sense, that's right. Um, the advice I give on communicating with your co-parent. So being brief, being directly about the child and being extremely positive. Uh, if, if you do those things, you really want to try to avoid, especially if it's a high conflict situation, especially if it's a situation like Frank maybe alluded to where so many of us go through where there are these vague false allegations, uh, you want to limit the communication. Uh, but zero communication isn't necessarily always an option. And, and it can be, be problematic, especially if you have younger children. Um, I have some instances where it involves younger children and we, uh, we, there was a situation at school during what was supposed to be mom's parenting time. But mom was at work two hours away. And so they got a hold of, of dad and dad was able to go get the child. They were sick at school, but the zero communication, uh, there was no lines of communication between the two made it an ordeal to make an exchange occur to get the child then to the mother. So um, in some situations, yes, zero communication. Um, in terms of developing it into a positive co-parenting situation, I would say that zero communication won't do that. But some situations, it definitely is is necessary. All right, we're gonna go. We're gonna go back to Frank. I'm sorry. These comments are coming in hot and heavy. And once again, I'm gonna remind everybody: if you're on the Facebook live stream, head over to the YouTube, like the YouTube channel, and get on that stream. I'm gonna try to answer um, all of the YouTube questions. Not gonna make any promises about the uh, the Facebook ones here. So, how is sole legal custody detrimental? So, sole legal custody is is detrimental in many ways. So there are over 125 studies that show maximizing the amount of time or relatively equal uh, parenting time between co-parents is what's best for the children in terms of their attachment and their feeling safety and their mental, social, and physical well-being. So over the last 30 years, we have plenty of documentation that shows that co-parenting, no matter how combative, is usually the best way forward. And we actually have some really good data coming out of uh, out of Kentucky, uh, and and there's been some data kind of collected other places around um, moving away from sole custody, and it, it's it's not even really debatable in terms of the child's well-being anymore to just have the one parent. Um, there's so many factors. I mean. In single parent households, really every aspect of life is impacted from education to crime to teen pregnancy. And a lot of times there's no difference between if it's a single mother or a single father. So um, 
at, at this, it's, it's really every aspect of life, high school education, college education, teen pregnancy, health and relationships, um, when they become of age, it, it's, it's really the full gamut of things uh, that is, is detrimental when they only have that one parent. And from a practical perspective, especially in high conflict situations, when you have a sole legal custody situation, that parent has power over the other parent. If you create a situation where the two are equal, then there's not going to be that tugging back and forth that you may see in a situation where, let's say, mom who, whether it be personality disorder issues, narcissism, borderline, um, my opinion, a lot of those are, are more of attachment type issues. Um, if you remove that sole legal custody, you truly make it an equal situation. A lot of those things uh, actually fall by the wayside because it's no longer a power struggle. They're, they're equals. We'll get Emmanuel here. What if I have a restraining order, but I have two hour visits a week, two hours visits a week, but she keeps canceling the same day so far for three weeks. Um, and it looks like second part of the comment Emmanuel had there, this involves her alleging it's, it's doctor's issues. So um, one of the things you can actually in most states get put into your custody order is that without uh, your parenting time can't be interrupted without uh, essentially a doctor's note. So that may be something that uh, next time you get in front of a judge, um, you may have to request to have that hearing. But the next time you get in front of a judge, you can uh, request that that gets added in. Um, right now, we live in a weird time. Your, your second comment mentions COVID. Uh, judges are tending right now to be very careful around um, anything involving COVID. Uh, despite the, the numbers that essentially if you're under the age of 24, there's almost zero risk. Um, but the, yeah, so that's a tough one in the times we're living in right now. But that might be one that uh, you uh, next time you're in front of the judge ask to if your parenting time is going to be interrupted, that there be only specific cutouts such as if there's a doctor's note. All right, we'll, we'll go to Homer here. So um, my ex-wife passed away and I know I have to fight my ex-wife family. They are in Tennessee and I live in Kentucky. So I'm not 100% certain on Tennessee law. Um, if the children live in Tennessee, that's the state that would have jurisdiction over your case. Um, the first interview I did actually, episode one of this, um, talk with Nashville attorney, uh, Connie Regali. And I, I would recommend reaching out to her. She handles, um, she handles a lot of, of high conflict and a lot of uh, cases similar to this. But uh, as the father, you should have first right, quote unquote, first dibs um, 
on getting the children. It's just going to be a matter of working your way through that legal system. There are unfortunately a lot of instances. Um, so sorry for you and your kids loss. There are unfortunately, though, a lot of instances where this does occur and mom's family is typically who it is will hide the children, withhold the children, do those types of things. So my recommendation would be would be finding an attorney who knows the specific laws in, in that state. If the kids have lived in Kentucky, then it would be in Kentucky. But uh, I, I'm not aware of a state that doesn't that that has a law that's different than if one parent passes away, the other one has full legal and physical custody. This is unfortunately, I, I, I see this becoming more and more common in the individuals that come into my office and the questions I get. So Abel here, she's planning on moving in with a convicted felon. Can I file for custody modification so I can see my child more? His last crime was a few years ago. Does that make a difference? Yes and no. So it's not uncommon to be able to go to court, especially if it was a violent offense or an offense against a minor, or if it was some sexual offense, whether if it was rape, sexual assault, if it was um, a gun charge, if it was some form of, form of violent felony, to be able to go to the court and the court to say, uh, yeah, the kids can't live with this individual. There's no necessarily guarantee on that, um, but, but that is something. And, and can I file for a custody modification? You can always file for a custody modification. It's a matter of if you can make a compelling argument for the change in custody. So depending on your state, they're going to have different burdens of proof for you to be able to get that change of custody. Um, so that, that's, that's something where it's going to be, unfortunately, probably a lot dependent on the judge and then how compelling an argument you or if you have an attorney can make that it is going to be detrimental to the children. Um, in terms of the crime being a few years ago, most states have um, in their rules for civil procedure, uh, essentially statute of limitations where those things would be relevant. Uh, so you would have to have to look on that. Um, it may be three years, it may be five years, it may be ten years. Um, but but yeah, there there would definitely there's there's a cutoff, but it wouldn't necessarily directly apply because it's not it's not involving them. You're just saying it's not in their best interest to be living with this individual. All right, so we got a little bit of a more of a technical question here from Lex. So um, my appeal was one due to the courts not addressing the threshold question of a material change of circumstance. Please clarify to litigants what can be done if one is proven or not proven. So depending on your state uh, to modify custody, some states it's much easier than others. Some states uh, had uh, Keith Flynn and Brian Jackson on probably about six weeks ago from Oklahoma. And once you get temporary orders, those are basically set in stone until you get to trial. Other states such as California, um, you can get modifications to those temp orders. Um, 
but it, it, this is more of a technical legal question that, that sometimes goes by the wayside in family court. And uh, so with, with every statute, with, every, with everything it's written, such as the, the California Family Code has the material change of circumstance. And, and that can be anything um, in terms of a move, it can be the living situation changes. It can be a change in job. A very common one is, say, it was litigated out when the child was two and now they're 12 and they obviously have very, very different needs. Uh, that may warrant a, a modification to the custody. But um, this goes back to educating yourself. And if you have an attorney, they should know this. But really with every, with every order, there are certain legal issues that have to be checked off, whether that be like I'll use the most common one here in California is in our domestic violence statute uh, in the family code. So if you're found to have perpetuated domestic violence for the court to grant you any sort of legal or physical custody, these seven different boxes have to be checked off and the judge either has to verbally say it on the record in court or they have to release a written opinion showing that they considered all seven of those steps. So this is, this is a situation where um, a lot of times you see when there's just been bad decisions made, people want to appeal. Typically appeals are for, for legal errors um, where they didn't, um, they didn't address the, the statute fully on what needed to be done to, to, to create that change. Dylan. Okay. So Dylan, thank you for your question here. So I'm going through divorce and the mother's new boyfriend was arrested for domestic violence for beating her. What can I do? Um, once again, everything in family law, it's going to go back to what your state code says. Uh, but that would be one of those situations where, especially if the children were present, um, that you at least want to address with the court uh, that there's domestic violence occurring in the home. And if, if he was arrested, that means it, it was probably rather serious, um, in, in terms of what's going on. And so that may be, that may even rise to a situation if it just recently occurred to filing it for an ex parte hearing to get into court because your children are in the presence of domestic violence and every single judge is going to take that very, very seriously. Um, so the answer is something you, you need to file, uh, especially if the kids were present. Uh, it may rise to the level you have to talk to an attorney in your state. In California, that would probably rise to the level of being able to get an ex parte hearing granted um, and getting into court as soon as possible to address that issue. So uh, Eva here. So it seems like there are more and more people 
uh, waking up in regards to women lying and manipulating in child custody cases and divorce. Why doesn't this seem to apply to judges? How come everybody lets women, quote unquote, off the hook, despite all the crimes and misery they commit with their lies? So I'm not going to go out there and say and act like I've been practicing law forever. But if uh, you, you talk to Michael Lambert was on the show uh, probably about two months ago now, attorney from Alabama. And we talked about this and he'd been practicing for 15, 20 years in the state of Alabama. And in his opinion, there's been an, an extreme shift uh, in favor of fathers. 15 years ago, it was much, much different. The biggest challenge with family court it, and situations like this is that there's an 18 year shot clock. Essentially, you're, you're going to be in the system for a maximum of 18 years and then you're done. You're out. You're on with life. So it has changed. Um, and, and here in the state of California, there's some statistics out there that 15 percent of temporary restraining orders that are granted um, are, are, are turned into permanent restraining orders. So. I think that there is it is more believable um, or there there is more scrutiny from the judges. It's not just a rubber stamp situation, but obviously any any time this occurs is a challenge. And that's probably one of the biggest flaws of family court right now are so many states have laws where domestic violence can be weaponized to improve your leverage, improve your position in divorce. You can go file a vague domestic violence accusation and all of a sudden it gives you a chip in terms of negotiating your divorce, negotiating child custody. Let me go back up here. I know I missed some of the, uh, the YouTube questions here. Once again, reminding everybody, if you're on Facebook right now, Hop on over to YouTube, like the YouTube page, ask your question there. I promise I will answer your YouTube question tonight. A lot of these YouTubes are comments, so we may have to go back down here. All right, Rafael, you got a good question here from YouTube. So Rafael, how to combat continued, delay, uh, continued delays for the hearings? So this has obviously been a major, major, major issue over the past 18 months with, with COVID. And it was an issue already to begin with um, because judges are, are typically inclined to grant at least one continuance um, to the opposing party really with no questions asked outside of situations where it's like a temporary domestic violence restraining orders in place. They're almost always gonna grant that one continuance and that, depending on where you're at in the country, could back your case up two and a half, three, four months. So, I mean, there, there's not a whole lot that can be done. You can start to paint a picture um, in terms of, of bad faith. And, and, and in most states, you're able to object to the continuances and the judge may still grant them. Um, there's not necessarily a, a mechanism that that's another huge flaw in, in this system. And you have to realize from, from, the, from the client side, from being someone going through the system, these hearings feel like they're so far away. There's so much space in between them. From the attorney side, from the judge side, when you're juggling multiple cases, you have multiple things going on, that six week, two month gap between hearings feels like nothing. Um, and I think that's part of the problem is that inside the system, it feels, it feels so much quicker than it does for a parent because ultimately 
Um, one of the parents is most likely trying to get more time with their children and the the other parent doesn't want that to occur. So so when you get those continuances, it feels like you're losing time with your children. <clears throat> All right, so we got William here. I have lots of documentation and video evidence of parental alienation and physical abuse from the mother to child. Does this come into play during mediation or more at trial? Definitely at trial, depends on mediation. So um, I, I'll use an example out here in, in Riverside and San Bernardino counties, mediations, man, mediation's mandatory in California before any request for order hearing. But in uh, in San Bernardino and Riverside County, the mediator, the social worker who does that mandatory mediation will make a recommendation to the judge and they will look at the totality of the circumstance and they will actually tell the judge if they think something like that occurred or what they found. Uh, if, if it's private mediation, probably not so much. But if, if it's if it's a mandatory mediation like it is out here in California, that that could play a role. Um, but that's definitely evidence uh, that you would want to present at trial. And, and that goes back to the beginning when it's when it's about documenting everything and having all of that evidence and building out your themes of your case, making sure you have that really locked down because you know that the other the the other parent is really going to fight those allegations hard so you better have kind of an airtight story that goes along with those all right let's go back down all right maria why family courts use a judge instead of a jury? I think the jury should uh, would be better. It, it would minimize gender bias. Potentially. Um, I, I think that potentially could occur. There, there's a couple issues. There, there are, in the state of Texas, you can actually have a jury trial. The, the biggest issue with jury trials is purely the expense um, on the parties. And that goes back to our entire system is essentially pay to play. Uh, you have to pay significant money for really anything and everything you have to deal with going through the family court system. And um, I, I would be curious, I haven't seen any stats and, and a lot of these stats just flat out don't exist even though we would like them to, but I would be curious to see if juries do uh, turn out better results than, than a bench trial in front of a judge that you get in 49 states because from, from my position, you see a lot of men who they're beat down prior to even their court hearing uh, by mom, by her family, even sometimes by their own family, that mom knows best, mom should get custody, you're going to be an every other weekend dad. The, the old antiquated philosophy and theory, the every other weekend, one, one pizza date uh, during the week. And so... I, I don't, I'm not 100% certain that a jury trial would fix everything um, and, and purely the expense. Also, as of right now, and this would be, have to be something that would be addressed if they would go, in the, go this way, but the system as it's currently set up could not support jury trials. 
Um, and so that would be a huge issue. So you would need full on reform because outside of the state of Texas that already offers them, um, the, the system I think about here in California, the logistics, if you were going to do jury trials would, would be too much without major reform. But that, that's, that's not an uncommon opinion um, that that would occur. I think, it, I think it'd be prohibitively expensive for most people, though, which is, is already an issue without that. All right, so the court order, this is from Leah. The court order is based off a school schedule, but the child does not have a, a school schedule. So mother says there is no winter visitation. What to do? Um, something. If, if there's no, uh, so right now we're sitting in, we're at the end of August. So if, if she's saying, hey, that because of this, you're not gonna get the time, there's no winter break, so you're not going to get winter visitation. Now is the time to act to go back into court to get clarification on that. Um, because if you wait until October, November, into December, and she still holds that position, you're going to be too late to have the judge be able to take that into account. So um, it, it's hard to say. Probably need a little bit more fact to be more specific on that answer, but. Um, you, you need to get in front of a judge most likely because if you're ordered, let's just say 10 days of winter break or whatever it may be, um, first half of winter break, second half of winter break, and she's saying winter break doesn't exist. Um, ultimately, if you can't come to an agreement, you need to get in front of a judge and allow the judge to make a decision. And if you guys are being reasonable, I don't know how you couldn't, how, what argument she would make that there's no winter break, but um, yeah, you're, you're just going to have to get in front of a judge, unfortunately. All right, we're going back to Lex here from YouTube. Why do states not have clear, unambiguous standards for what qualifies as low, medium, and high conflict custody cases? Courts could be shepherded by statute to mitigate issues with clear guidance. Very well said. So uh, there, there's actually some things along this, along these lines that are in the works. Uh, it had been probably about three, four months ago, I believe it was the American Bar Association post, uh, published an article that there is some artificial intelligence software out there that's being developed that will be able to place cases into buckets uh, from the get-go. Uh, and then you would have to design some sort of conveyor belt system that different levers would get pulled when if they would the cases would shift because there are definitely cases that start out very cordial that turn into high conflict um, but there is some ai software allegedly on the way that's going to do some of that work in the beginning we'll see how fast states adjust and adopt it but i completely agree because there are instances whether it be serious domestic violence uh substance abuse different things like that, that, that truly need more attention. And right now the courts can't necessarily give it that attention because that best interest standard and the one size fits all handling of cases um, overwhelms the court. So I, I completely agree. Um, I, I don't know how fast states are going to adopt things like that. Um, 
it tends to be a little bit too nuanced for state legislators. I don't know if anything like that's ever even really been presented to them, but um, it seems to be a very nuanced issue that um, would probably take several years to kind of get the ball rolling and for states to feel comfortable. I mean, you look at the equal and shared parenting. I mean, now it's been been three full years since Kentucky's done it, and we only have two states despite the positive outcomes. So we'll go to back to Frank here. So how is a judicial officer held to a higher standard? So um, I, I don't necessarily, wouldn't necessarily say it's a higher standard, but there are certain ethics that they must follow. And probably the most frustrating thing for fathers and really parents in general going through the family courts isn't necessarily unethical judges. It's that the current standard in place in 48 states and the District of Columbia uh, is the best interest of the child. And what exactly does that mean? And, and the states are very vague, very vague on that. And so when you sit back and you take a look at it, um, to be able to appeal a case, to be able to hold the judge accountable, you, they essentially right now can point to, I made that decision because it was in the best interest of the child. And that's going to be something that's going to be really, really hard to overturn on appeal. That's going to be really hard to report them to the judicial ethics um, entity in your state uh, because the best interest of the child is so discretionary and so broad. So there are definitely standards. Um, family court tends to sit in this gray area. And then that best interest of the child standard really uh really makes things difficult and then you pair that with everything kind of being cloaked in, under seal like one of the things i would love to see in terms of advocating for equal and shared parenting i would love to see statistics on judges and you could break these down in in several ways but in terms of okay uh when they make decisions on custody how how much goes to mom how much goes to dad on average uh, when there's a domestic violence case in front of them, how often do they rule? They grant the, T, the TRO into a permanent restraining order. How often do they not? Um, and then even you could even break it down by race and different things like that. So we could see a strike percentage of judges. I think I think that right now they're kind of hidden by kind of the cloak of of darkness in terms of everything sealed in family court. So uh, they, there are standards, but it's just there's just everything's so vague and so gray area in family law, it makes it next to impossible. But we have seen there, there are stories every, every month that come out about judges getting disciplined. Um, I think as the, the proliferation of groups such as this and many others have allowed for fathers to connect and understand, and we see more about judges getting overturned for their bad decisions. So there's more coming. The internet's kind of spark, put some light on, on these issues, but until there's major reform that, that kind of lifts the cloak on judges and their decision-making, you're probably not gonna see much change. All right, we'll go to Anthony here. Hi there. The problem in New York is clear and cognizant about perjury and fraudulent documents being allowed to make up the crisis here in New York state. Why do they treat perjury as if it's been repealed? <laughs> That's uh, perjury is always a very, very tricky thing 
when it comes to family courts, if you go ask your local district attorney's office, when's the last time they prosecuted perjury in family court, you're probably going to get laughed out of the office. Um, and that's an issue. That, that's obviously an issue. And I think the biggest challenge with perjury in family court is the, the phrase I use is everything operates so much in the gray area of he said, she said. So family court operates a lot of times on that preponderance of the evidence. So 51%. Or, or 50.0001% and they favor with that side. And so they don't have the burden that say a district attorney's office that's prosecuting for perjury um, or fraudulent documents or whatever that may be has that beyond reasonable doubt. So the, there, there's this gap in that it's so much harder for a DA to prosecute that they don't, they don't chase after them. Um, I, I think there's some district attorney's offices out here in California that are declining to prosecute or just holding on to very clear cases because they're so overwhelmed. Um, a lot of, including the courts, really all state legal functions are so overwhelmed and understaffed that it, it makes it a challenge. I, I've had um, an attorney, I, we were talking about this issue and what could be done. He recommended that if you create a statute where essentially opposing counsel could prosecute the opposing attorney or the opposing party for perjury right there in family court. Obviously some issues with that, but that that's something there needs to be better answers. There needs to be individuals held to a higher standard. Um, and ultimately we need to get rid of the best interest of the child standard for something more equitable that that lowers tension from the start. We'll go back to Lex here. You highlighted one of the main issues. It takes years for legislation to catch up with real world issues families face. Yeah, that, that's that's just the truth of the matter. I mean, if you go talk to any of the individuals who have, have been in the equal and shared parenting fight in the father's rights movement for uh, a decade, two decades, whatever it may be, um, not much has changed. But But one thing is clear. This is an issue that was a fringe issue 20 years ago. And in 2021, five states positively changed their child custody laws. One of them got that 50-50 presumption. So five states improved their laws this year. So this is this is a snowball that's growing, that's rolling downhill. Um, I, I think groups like this, conversations like this that occur only create more awareness. And legislation in in always in, in all areas is always going to kind of be behind. The only areas it's not are when you create these large social justice issues and you see these immediate changes. Um, we saw it this past summer when reports are that 1% of the population took to the streets um, after the, the George Floyd incident. And, and obviously there are very real issues uh, that come along with that, but there, there are just as egregious issues that occur in in family courts and they impact more people 49 percent of the population in the united states is men um and uh there are thousands upon th tens of thousands of women who are either negatively impacted by the family court system or are in the support system of a man who's who's struggling with through this system so um i think the snowball is growing and, and i've i've been telling people now for probably about a year that we're two to five years away 
from this issue being one of the mainstream issues in the United States. We're, we're so, so close. We just have to continue to educate more and more people, um, introduce bills into more and more state legislators and, and have advocates that are in the courthouses explaining why this is necessary. Uh, because once the snowball gets big enough, once the awareness is truly out there and individuals understand what the issue is, um, things will change, things will happen quickly. So if you think about it, I mean, we had 2018 was when Kentucky passed their equal and shared parenting law. There really hadn't been a whole lot of activity, a little bit of activity since. And then in one year, we had five states change. And um, I think there's a very strong possibility that we have even more states get positive changes in, in, uh, in 2022 and 2023. Ooh, good question here, Maria. So for those getting married, can future child custody be added in the prenup? I think if everything is discussed prior to marriage, we eliminate headaches. The short answer is no. So in most states, child custody and um, child support are open issues until the child turns 18 or in some states, 21. So you, you, you can't include in a prenup, it wouldn't be valid to include child custody in that prenup. The other issue too would be um, so few prenups happen, even though it's not necessarily about protecting your assets. Um, but uh, yeah, so, so few prenups actually happen, especially with middle class families or middle lower class or even middle upper class. Um, most people that don't have don't have significant assets coming into a marriage, which is 99% of marriages, don't go through the process of, of paying, let's say, $1,000 to get a prenup, even though realistically everyone should. But even, even in the cases of prenups occurring, um, child custody would not be something that uh, could be couldn't be included or it can be included, but it wouldn't necessarily be valid. So we'll get Chris's question here. We got probably about 10 more minutes. So I'll get two or three more questions here. So uh, hop on, get your questions in here before we uh, wrap up tonight. What happens if the other party fails to comply with a motion to compel discovery in a child support case? Um, so a couple follow-up questions that I would have to that, whether it would be if the issue has been in front of a judge or the child support agency uh, out here in California's Department of Child Support Services is the one trying to compel that information. Um, if, a, if a party fails to comply with a judge that is or has compelled the party to produce certain documents, um, they, they can go as far as putting the party in jail. So essentially you would just need to file and get back in front of the judge and say, hey, you compelled this and they're refusing to comply. And they can be held in contempt of court, which essentially they can be put in jail until they follow the order.
go back to Lex here. He's got a good one in regards to legislation. So please clarify for litigants uh, how to contact their local district and state representatives regarding these issues. So most states, you can you can literally you can hop onto Google right now uh, and and you could Google your state, whether it be whether you have uh, Congress or assembly, whatever they call it, and then your state Senate. You can Google your local representatives right now and they'll probably have an office in your community and then an office at the state house. And you, you would be amazed at how responsive most state legislators are to local concerns. Uh, it's not all that difficult to at least have a brief conversation. So um, in terms of child custody laws, uh, the your your congressmen in, in D.C., your senators in Washington, D.C., they don't really have much pull. They don't really have much say because it's a state issue. So um, you'll every. Yeah. So you'll have you'll have local senators. You'll have local assembly people out here in California. Um, and if you literally just hop on Google and you Google who who is my senator, uh, it will pop up and, and you don't even necessarily have to call your own. Um, you can you can reach out to as many as you want that most of them have an email address. Uh, most of the offices, you won't have the senator or the assembly person actually emailing you back, but their office will have an email inbox and you can email them and you can do that as many times as you want until you can potentially, even if it's just 10, 15 minutes of your state senator's time to explain the situation and explain how it impacts people and explain what you want. Um, a lot of times, if you can get the ball rolling at the grassroots level, large organizations like the Fathers' Rights Movement and some others can can come in and help help push things forward. So, uh, yeah, it can be a simple phone call. Um, I've heard stories of individuals emailing their state senator or calling their office, and then within a day or two, having an hour and a half long conversation about the problems and issues. You'd be amazed at the number of, of, of our elected officials who have gone through the family court process, but maybe they don't fully understand how big of an impact and how widespread that impact is. So we'll take, this is a super common question. This is gonna vary state to state. So Ken here, um, I was court ordered to terminate recording, filming, and no more affidavits, which clearly provided evidence of direct perjury. So I'll address first the recording and filming. So there are two types of states when it comes to recording or filming. There are one party consent states, which means if I'm in that state, I can pull my cell phone out and I can record anyone at any time. I can just pull my phone out and I can start recording. Uh, the second type is a two-party state where they either have to have knowledge of the recording or they have to give permission for the recording. And in those states, it's a, it's, it's a crime actually to film individuals. So for example, um, I went to law school in Chicago. So I was in the state of Illinois. Illinois is a two-party state. So anytime that a professor wanted to film a lecture, even if the camera wasn't directly pointing on someone, even if they weren't in the camera view, their voice might be heard during it, 
they would pass around a, a permission form that you would have to sign to give the professor permission to film the lecture. And if one person said no, that professor couldn't film that lecture. So without knowing the details, um, it's it's one of those things where it's it's kind of a slippery, slippery slope um, in terms of what the laws are and what you're able to do. That may just be a judge per se enforcing state law. Um, and then affidavits, which clearly provide evidence to direct perjury, need, it would need a little bit more detail um, when it comes to that. But um, a judge refusing what what should be relevant evidence shouldn't be occurring. Um, that would be more of a civil procedure question or an evidence question as to how to enter that. All right, so we'll go ahead and we're right at an hour now. I'll take two more questions and then we'll wrap up here. All right, so we'll go back to Maria here. If the custodial parent moves out of the state with child to X state and the, all, the, the father also moves out of the state to Y state, how, uh, how long all parties have to wait before the original state loses jurisdiction? So the state never loses jurisdiction. So once you're in court, that courthouse, that venue retains jurisdiction, but state courts are very, very willing if the venue becomes, um, and then, then this just goes back to just some civil procedure. The, if the venue becomes, um, if the venue is not relevant to either party anymore, uh, typically you can motion to move the case. You can motion to move the case county to county, um, uh, a lot, but the court itself has to release jurisdiction. So the original court re retains jurisdiction indefinitely and they have to release jurisdiction and then allow you to file in another state. All right, so I'm gonna take one more question here. I gotta put you up here, Lamont. Lamont has a headache now from this 45 minutes of Q&A. I'll find a good one here to end on. I've answered a lot of these. go back. I haven't gotten this one from YouTube with Leah here. Um, so Leah, she kept the address from dad because he wanted to know where the child was for the summer pickup. Is this considered contempt? Possibly. So a lot of court orders barring where there's been domestic violence, there's a requirement for the parents to provide addresses, but that would have to explicitly be laid out in your court order for that to be applicable. So it depends. If it's not in your court order, then there's nothing for her to be held in contempt of. If it states in your court order that within 14 days, within 30 days of moving, you must provide the other parent your new address, um, then yes, that, that would be something that, that you, could, you could go to court and ask them to find her in contempt. 
but it would have to be present. They can't be contempt of something that's not in a court order. And that's usually the biggest challenge. Some, uh, some common sense things, if they're not explicitly laid out and explicitly laid out in a certain way, then it's, it's near impossible to prosecute someone um, for contempt. So with that, guys, um, we will uh, conclude tonight's episode of State of the Family Courts. I hope everyone enjoyed the, uh, the little bit different format here because of the COVID cancellation. Uh, next week, we'll be back with a, uh, with, the norm, with a normal episode. We'll have a guest on here. We'll announce that hopefully early next week who our guests will be. So uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And we will see everyone next Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific time, 8 p.m. Eastern for State of the Family Courts.